It's been said a few times, but I'll add to it. Good morning. We're grateful that you are here. It is a delight to be a part of a church, to be able to gather together, to know that God is not only with us, He's for us. He desires our attention, our hearts, and our hope is to continue moving toward Him. That's the goal. If we haven't got a chance to meet, my name's Lance. I'm one of the pastors here. I often get a chance to consider the Bible with you together. And so we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 in just a moment. If you have a Bible with you, you could turn there. Romans 3. Let me give you a little bit of backdrop about why we're turning to Romans. We have been studying the book of Romans now for a number of months. We feel that uh, it's not the only way to study Scripture, but we think a very wise way, perhaps the best way, is to start books of the Bible and then try to work our way through them. That means we take... uh, a chapter at a time and sometimes little chunks or verses at a time, and we try to see what it is that God is speaking to a particular church in a particular time, and then by extension, by His Spirit, what He's preserved for us. So we have spent a number of months in Romans, and the tagline or the title over this and the entirety of this book is Rags to Righteous, a little play on words, but the idea meaning that when we have come to grips with our need, the great sinfulness of mankind. We will declare that even our best efforts are as filthy rags. That's what the Bible says about them. And we will see that, but then also we will glory in, we'll awaken with wonder to the idea that God can take people who are in filthy rags, who are in unrighteousness and in sin, and He can declare them righteous. And not a fake kind of flaky righteous, but a real sturdy righteousness, the kind of righteousness that comes by faith, the same righteousness that's going to be declared of Jesus, the kind of righteousness that opens the door into God's presence eternally. And that transition, that path from sin or being unjust to being declared just and justified is what Romans is all about. Now, if you've been following along closely, you know that last week was a turning point, a little bit of a pivot. We spent two and a half chapters describing and defining and really, I think in a lot of ways, sort of having surgery done on us to show us where every bad thing was. Now, I wouldn't recommend this as a parenting style, but sometimes I do introduce my boys to The Simpsons. And there's a moment in one of the episodes of The Simpsons where Homer has heart problems. Imagine that. And so he has to go, and he's having all kinds of blockages, and he goes and he sits with a doctor, and he goes in and the, he says to the doctor, well, what's wrong with me? And the doctor says, well, it's really, 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 really bad. We're going to run this battery of tests. And then the question that he asks him is, well, can we fix it? And he says, no, not at all, but we can tell you exactly how bad it is. And Homer says, wow, the marvels of modern medicine. And it's in that way that the first two and a half chapters serve us. So if we stopped in the middle of chapter three, we might be just like that doctor who says, well, I've told you exactly how bad it is but there hadn't quite been a fix yet. And last week, beginning in verse 21, we see what Paul begins to glory in and tell us and show us, invite us to consider, and that is is that a righteousness of God has been revealed and that we can be declared just in His sight. Not only do we know how bad it is, but God has provided a cure. He's invited us to Himself. He's shown us a path to righteousness. And what is coming now in the heels of that description, this great exchange, all of our sin, all of our difficulty, all of our hopelessness transferred onto Christ at the cross, 
in all that he has earned, his righteous life, his overcoming of the grave, his perfect position with the Father being given to us. In light of that exchange now, we are going to begin reading in the 27th verse of Romans. And Paul is going to begin one by one, piece by piece, considering in a sort of domino fashion all that falls once you have seen what God is up to in Jesus. What comes next? What are we to look for? And that's what we're considering as I look at verse 27. His first thing that he thinks about is the law. In other words, if this is a new kind of justification, if God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, what about old systems or previously trusted systems of justification? And that is what he addresses first. I'm going to begin reading the 27th verse, just down through the end of the chapter, and I'd love for you to follow along. Romans 3, starting in verse 27, says this, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart that one. No one's justified by faith. Fire me. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. I'm going to pause right here and I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask that you would unite your heart with, uh, with mine. I know that especially in a church setting, there you are in rows, and here I am up here with a microphone, very easy to make prayer a spectator sport. And I want to ask that you would listen carefully, that we would unite in the things that we're attempting here, and I'm going to ask God that he helps us to see marvelous things in Scripture, that it would be alive to us. That's what we say it is. We confess that this is a living and active word. It's not just ink on paper. It's not just moral instruction. It's the living word of God. And so let's ask him together that it is that here for us this morning. Let's pray. God, you've been good to us. Not only sort of good, not a little bit good, but good to the point where you've invited us to call you Father. You've connected yourself to us as a head of a family You've poured out riches of kindness on us. We don't want to presume on those this morning. And then one of your great kindnesses is that you have spoken. You've revealed yourself. You have shown yourself to be lovely, to be righteous, pure, holy, and welcoming, full of mercy, ready to give grace to those who would trust you. And I ask God that you would help us now to see all of what you are and who you are and what you desire of us, that you would help us to see Scripture, to understand it rightly. God, we confess truths about the Bible. It's what we hold to. It's what we share as Christians. And I ask that you would close the gap between what we confess and what we experience here this morning. We don't want a, a bear or a dead confession, but a full and lively one. 
So, Spirit of God, move. Give us an understanding of the gospel. Help us to see all of the big and obvious truths and the nuanced truths and the applications that may come from reading Scripture. I ask God that I could be helpful to your people. I know that you love us. You love those who have gathered with an everlasting love. And we offer ourselves to you now. All of our distractions, all of our doubting, the sins that we have confessed, the sins that we dare not confess, God, convict us. Draw us to yourself and show us your goodness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's an interesting question, an interesting place that Paul goes after describing 21 to 26, after describing what a wonder it is to have this gospel, this idea that you can be justified, you could have a record offered to you, applied to you, that means that all that was against you previously has been expunged, the thing that you might say to yourself is, well then, what are the applications of this and how does this work? Once he's described this, then what? And I find it intriguing that in verse 27, he goes to a particular concept, the idea of boasting. And what we're going to consider this morning is why does he go to boasting and what does that mean? How is the idea of boasting tied to justification? What is the connection here? I think it's an In many ways, a surprising thing for him to say such a declarative, amazing statement in verse 26, that God is going to be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. And then the next rhetorical question, a mechanism that Paul uses regularly in the way that he teaches, he asks questions. He tries to get ahead of where the reader may be, the things that they are considering, the things that they may be struggling to put to death in them. And so he says to them, well, then what about boasting? That's an interesting question. It's almost like he's inviting them to say, you know how we used to brag all the time? What, now? We can't? Like they're attached to it. He assumes that they boast, but then more than that, here's the interesting thing, he assumes that they will have a loss of boasting and it will affect them. You know how you're always bragging about yourself and the things that you have or the things that you are? What happens when you lose that? That's the question that he's asking. Then what becomes of our boasting? And he gives a very definite answer. It is excluded. So there's a kind of boasting that is going to be excluded here. And what I want to do is take some time to define this boasting. That's going to include answering the question, who is our? Who's boasting? What becomes of our boasting? And then how is it excluded? And why should it be? What are the problems that come with this kind of life, this idea of boasting? And then finally, how does faith become the one power, the penetrating power that can finally get rid of this kind of thinking, this sort of heart position of boasting? So the first thing we want to do is consider how would you define this word? I think in some ways, maybe the definition of boasting is simple. The kind of thing you thought about when you were a little kid. Your parents likely introduced you to the concept when they told you not to do it. Perhaps you had a better Pokemon card than your friends. Maybe your food at the lunch table was better than the people around you. Maybe you had a better piece of cake than your siblings at a birthday party. And you learned, and I think not only learned, but innately everyone had this idea, to find 
a sense of standing in something. You see, human beings are interesting, and from the earliest ages, we learn sometimes that things that are external to us can be used to, bo- to bolster and to boost our identity. And so we attach ourselves to things and we point them out so that other people can see and assess our standing. It's a funny instinct that we have in our fallen nature to not only note that you have a piece of cake, but then to instantly compare it to the pieces of cake that the people around you have and then want to point that out as a means of comparison or a way to tell them, don't you wish you were me? In children, it can often be a funny thing. It can be a cute thing. But if left unchecked, it is a devastating thing. That kind of idea, this idea that our identity is wrapped up in things that give us pride. I would say that Paul is using boasting, not just in the simple childlike sense, but the full grown-up version of that, where human beings have a tendency to place confidence to place confidence in particular external attributes or things that they can accomplish or things that they do, things that have come their way. And ultimately, what people are boasting in, I believe, is an indicator. It is a a tunnel, it's a pathway to see through to the thing that they believe will bring them ultimate hope, status, what will deliver them, what will rescue them. The reason that the Bible is so counterintuitive is because it includes things like boasting in weakness. So, well, what's the alternative to that? I think it's the natural state of mankind is that is we find things and we boast in strengths. So one of the reasons it's important to follow your boasts, to think about what am I proud of? What are the things that my heart rejoices in? Because here's my guess, we're going to have to do a little work here because many of you had a wonderful example, a teacher somewhere, a parent somewhere, a sibling who slapped you, or some reason you learned to not boast out loud. It's rare that you hear bragging on its face. That's why people have learned creative things like humble bragging. Right? There's entire industries around these, books that sell over the hilarity that ensues when someone knows they're not supposed to boast out loud, but they do it subtly. And so my guess is, is that many of you are not on the surface boasting in things, but we ought to pay attention to the secret places that our heart attached to, to give us identity, to give us purpose, and ultimately that will deliver a good and happy life. Those are the kind of things that we're tempted to boast in. We boast in intelligence. We boast in status or hard work. We boast in our ability to simply endure. We boast in the comparison between our status and those around us. We boast in our righteousness, the things that we have done well. A good question, a good check, it seems to be, because this is what Paul invites the reader to do. He says, there is a justification that comes by faith. Now, what's the first implication? Well, just remember to check your boasting. So it's a good indicator. What are the things that you're most naturally proud of, the things that you feel like define you, the things that on a day-to-day basis, even when you're not paying attention, you would be tempted to place your hope in? Those set of things that are at the core of who you are, 
your real resume, what makes you impressive. And maybe on the flip side, in a more devastating way, to pay attention to our boasting would be able to answer a question something like this, what would be most devastating to lose? What thing do you get most prickly about when someone presses on or accuses you of lacking it? What kinds of things would leave you listless, helpless, and potentially hopeless if you thought that that thing was no longer going to deliver you? It is this kind of idea. We boast in the things that we believe will give us ultimate standing, identity, purpose, and maybe at its baseline, we boast in the things that will bring us happiness, that will deliver the good life. And Paul says that in order for you to get to the point where you have received the grace that will come, the unmerited favor that will come by being justified by faith, you're going to have to address boasting. Now, it's possible that when he says our here in verse 27, that what becomes of our boasting, that this definition might be narrowly in view those of Jewish people. There's evidence throughout, especially in chapter 3, that he's trying to convince Jewish people, through the end of 2 really, and all through chapter 2, that he's trying to convince Jewish people that they do not have a standing or a hope that is anywhere other than God's grace, that it's going to be the same as Gentiles. So it's likely, of course, that they're in view. But my guess is, is that we can read it as an all-mankind thing as well. He's going to include himself. Paul has learned the temptation of boasting. Now, he was a Jewish person and a good one at that, but I don't believe that it would be helpful for us. In fact, it could be a sort of counterintuitive irony or a sort of counterproductive irony for us to apply here and say, yeah, yeah, our boasting just means Jewish people, those people who are tempted to boast, because I'm so not like that. I don't know if you noticed, but I'm not the kind of person who's tempted to boast. I would never do that. There's something innate about me, I think. I'm just more humble. I just don't, I'm not prone to boast like boastful people. You know what I'm saying? I just, it's so obvious if you think about it. You see how odd this can be? So why don't we jump in with the condition of Jewish people and realize that all mankind is boasting. And that's because, remember if we're making connections here, If we boast in the things that deliver us status, happiness, peace, the thing we'll ultimately deliver, I think it's a key to the way that God has created us. You see, we all hope in something. That's the idea here. We are hopeless hopers. All of us have a little Hallmark channel in us. I mean, I think that's the idea. Some some of you who love the Hallmark channel, I'm I don't even know what I meant by that, except, uh, except that when I think of hope, like hope against hope, I think of that kind of romantic ideal, this idea that somehow things will work out, that you will re- receive something that is good. All of us innately, because we're designed in the image of God, have a sense of what glory could be. We have a desire for otherness, desire to be received, a desire to be justified, every single person wants happiness and well-being. And so it is this fact that Paul is going to address. Now, elsewhere, 
Paul's going to describe and show how he needed to come to grips with his own boasting when he came to know Christ. I'm going to turn to Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives us an example, a roadmap. So what does this look like? Well, when you've come to know Christ and you've come to consider Him and realize that there is a kind of self-renouncing that needs to take place, you need to re-examine and reprioritize your boasting, your hoping, and he's going to give us an example of what it looks like to set aside possible things that you could boast in. I'm going to start in verse 5, but just as an introduction, in the beginning of chapter 3, Paul's going to say this, some of you are having confidence in the flesh. Some of you have a list of things that you believe you're confident. I'm strong here. I have an identity here. I belong because of these things. And he says, I just want you to know, if anyone had reason to have confidence in the flesh, I have more, which is funny. He's, he's playing their game. And then here's his list of all the things that he had previously boasted in, the things that he thought would deliver him to ultimate status. Here's the list starting in verse 5. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. He's, which is a funny thing to boast in because he had no control over such a thing. It's like a seven-year-old baby says, like, Mom, Dad, remember tomorrow is the day. But he still, he realizes he's in a line or tradition of faithfulness. So he's circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. But... I believe this is one of the transitions. This is in his life an example of the way that the transition from verse 26 to 27 in Romans 3 takes place. But, he says, watch, boasting is going to be excluded. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I, may, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Paul demonstrates for us and has felt in his own body, in his own being, what it means to receive a righteousness by faith is to systematically put to death and renounce any sense of standing or boasting in self. That anything that competes with receiving the grace of God by faith in Christ needs to be rejected. It can never be and will never be Jesus coming alongside a set of other circumstances. Jesus is not the lead item on a resume that then you are forced to fill out and retain some sense of pride in. What must be done is to be humbled and to receive a righteousness that you could not earn and did not deserve. Here's what Paul is saying by necessity. A proud Christian is an oxymoron. It ought to be an impossibility. And it's the first test of whether you get this or not. It's the first test of whether you understand what is being 
said. And the reason I believe that he says it to those who are listening, especially or perhaps first and then with all of mankind in view, the Jewish people, is because they had come to believe and come to hope in a kind of standing that was outside of faith, a kind of standing in what they'd accomplished, a kind of standing in their ancestors, an identity that if they got poked and if it got pushed and if all these other people were allowed to come in would have made them furious. It destabilizes a person. It destabilizes a person to have them have to give up the source of their surest confidence. And what happens when someone comes to grips with what we need in Christ and what we've received in Christ is that everything else that they had trusted in, everything else that they longed for, every other way that they put themselves forward out into the world and said, I'm going to be okay, all of those need to be renounced. This kind of boasting is excluded, Paul says. And as we read in Philippians, he has also experienced the same thing and has lived a life where he has been willing to exclude it. All of those good things became a bad thing when he trusted in them for his standing with God and his ultimate hope in the world. Now, if we define boasting in that way, as a, as a sort of conduit, a way to look through, a lens through which to see our ultimate hope, and an invitation for us to renounce those things, then we might ask the question, well, why is it that God wants to set us free from this boasting? So we define boasting in that way, then a second category that's worth taking a peek at is to consider, well, what are the problems with boasting? What happens to a person who wants to grasp onto Jesus but retain or hold on to their boasting? And by boasting, I mean pride. What happens to a person who tries to become or maintain a life as a proud Christian? Well, my guess is, and I think that the testimony not only of myself, but of many who have gone before, the testimony of Scripture is that it will lead you to dangerous errors. I'm going to point out two dangerous errors of maintaining a kind of boasting, maintaining a kind of boasting, but trying to receive Christ. Here's the first danger of being a person who has placed your hope, specifically in this way. He's going to talk about those people who place their confidence in performance, that I did it right or I did it slightly better than the people around me. Here's one of the first dangers with doing that. You might succeed. That's a huge danger. And at any given moment, remember back in Romans 1, it says that our conscience is going to be constantly either excusing us or accusing us. Well, excusing is the first danger of being someone who boasts in your performance because sometimes you'll perform well and you will develop a kind of self-righteousness, a kind of pride that even though you confess Christ, you compare yourself to the people around you who don't really get it, who aren't following the way that they ought to follow. When you place your identity in doing things well and in performing, one of the dangerous problems with that is that when you are doing it well, you will be prone to judgment, self-righteousness, and excuse. You will believe that you can do it. 
you will diminish the work of Christ because either subtly or on the surface, you will be replacing it with your success. You will become so impressive to yourself that Jesus will be less impressive to you in what he has accomplished on your behalf. This is one of the dangers of living by moralism. You might succeed. I mean, that's legitimately what Scripture says. Paul says, here was my problem. I was blinded to Christ because I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was zealous. I was doing everything right. And it led me to pride that blinded me. That's not the only error. You see, Romans has told us as well that our conscience is either going to excuse or accuse us. And many of us, if you're finding your identity, your ultimate hope, your purpose in a performance or what you do or anything external to Jesus, one of the dangers is that you'll fail. You won't get it right. Or worse, the thing that you're placing your hope in will fail. This is a rhetorical question that is painful and it seems like the answer is obvious, but have you ever placed your hope in someone or something and it failed you? Have you felt what that does to your soul? Are you right now placing your hope in someone or something that you are furiously striving and hoping to patch together, wishing fretting and anxious that it might fail you? If succeeding with external hopes and boasting in things means that you'll be led to pride, a second danger is that all things external to Jesus will ultimately fail you and it will lead you to despair and accusation and cynicism and apathy. There is an epidemic of apathy and cynicism from a world that has consistently placed its hope in things that will fail. Is your ultimate hope and sense of purpose that one idea, one ideology, ideology, one philosophy, one platform, politically or otherwise, would succeed? That would just be the hope. If it would just be this, is it one leader, religious, civic, political, or otherwise, if this one person could just come through on our behalf? Is it one relationship? If I could just get this kind of relationship worked out, ultimate happiness, ultimate identity, ultimate standing would be mine. Are you working through cynicism or apathy? Because your success and your ultimate happiness was eventually going to be achieved through some sort of path in work. If I just achieve this status, this promotion, this amount of responsibility, this paycheck, then, and you get there, and it fails you. It fails you. And this thing external to Christ that you believed, whether it was an on-the-surface kind of thing, more likely it was subtle. You'd allowed yourself to attach hope for ultimate happiness to this thing, and then it fails you again and again and again, and you find yourself waking up in the morning with a cynicism 
and an inability to go forward. You just can't take getting disappointed again. You see, it's a second danger of living with things external. It can be personal if you fail in moralism because you believe that you were better than that. One of the hardest things to get over for someone who believes that they can perform perfectly is that they are going to sin. And I've sat with people who, because they cannot explain the sin in their lives, they are completely and utterly undone. It is so disorienting because what the person wants to scream out is, I'm not like that though. The reality is, is that all of us, none righteous, all of us need Christ, and this is going to sound super profound, ready? All of us need Christ for a reason. That's the hardest thing to reckon with. It wasn't a good idea that God just invaded and said, like, here, try this. No, you needed Christ for a reason. And if you try to place your hope, your ultimate status in performing morally, you will fail, you will sin, and you will find yourself disoriented with a constant accusation that you don't belong, that you failed, that you can't make it. And so what Paul wants to show people immediately, this is one of the greatest applications of the gospel. If you've understood grace, if you've understood faith, which is in 21 to 26 of Romans chapter 3, the first thing that you're going to realize is that I can give up boasting. I can stop trying to put forward an image of myself. I can stop trying to perform. I can give up those external things that always disappoint. It's exhausting to try to keep up hope in idols of the world. It's exhausting. Constantly having to patch them. It's like having a super old boat. Constant issues, constant problems. In fact, one of the problems with having a boast, a hope in something that you're proud of, is that you will do whatever it takes to circle the wagons to not let that thing get exposed. I think it's one of the best indicators. Am I boasting in something other than Christ? Is when you're tempted to over-defend when you'll bend the truth so as not to actually expose the thing that was being trusted in. You ever found yourself making excuses for the inexcusable? And you say to yourself, why am I doing this? Because desperately you don't want that thing to fail. You don't want to admit that that thing couldn't deliver you to where you wanted it to deliver you. This happens all the time. That's why we don't confess our sins. That's why we defend unacceptable behavior in other things or places or products or companies because we're trying to prop it up. It is exhausting. So Paul wants us to see a proud Christian, someone who boasts, someone who is holding on to all these other things of identity and standing, that is impossible. One of the first things that grace does is that it, it excludes that kind of boasting. Because when faith comes in, it is a faith that empties, a faith that makes us look to Christ and to Christ alone. And it is faith that will exclude this kind of boasting, that will push it out, because faith grasps onto Christ, and He 
is the only one who has perfectly fulfilled, who has never disappointed, who will stand and deliver us to where we need to be. The promise, the kind of hopeless hoping that all of us have at the depth of our being will only and ever find fulfillment in Christ. And it is that hope, a fixed faith in that justification through Christ that ultimately relieves us of the pressure of having to constantly search for and patch up and hold on to false hopes. He's inviting the Jewish people who believed that they're standing in ancestry, their moralism with the law, the fact that they even had the law altogether to to see that God has delivered them to a place of much greater happiness. That there is a kind of new law. And this is going to be something that we follow through the rest of the book, that Paul's going to begin to use the word law in different ways. He's trying for these people, especially who are listening in, to see law in a different way. The law has been upheld in Jesus. But there is now a new law, and I think by that he doesn't mean the Torah, he doesn't mean the Ten Commandments, but a new method, a new system, a new way that God is working. This law he calls a law of faith. And when the law of faith has been revealed, and when it has been received, it supersedes all other laws. This idea of federal law, maybe overwhelming, overcoming a state law, let's not get into whether or not that's just or not, but I'm just saying, one law superseding the other, one court higher than the lower courts, like a parent coming in and setting up or stepping into the rules that kids have made up for some game, and them saying like, well, okay, those are fine rules, but our, our rules supersede those rules. Paul is going to show them and wants us to see as well that the law is not going to be thrown away, the Torah is not going to be thrown away, it was perfectly upheld in Jesus, but it has been superseded. And this law of faith, this invitation to believe, to renounce, and to no longer boast in anything external or anything internal that we can achieve, but to grasp onto Christ, is freedom. The contrast, starting here between this law of faith and a law of works, is going to carry us now for a good while in Romans. John Murray once said, The difference here in these two systems is as plain as day. It is these two things. The law of faith is ultimately self-renouncing. That to have faith in Christ is to renounce self. Whereas a law of works is self-congratulatory. The law of faith is self-renouncing rather than congratulating based on a law of works. The first and most defining factor of a person who has received grace by faith is they understand why they needed it in the first place. Their mouths are stopped. And on two ways, they no longer make excuses, but they also no longer boast. They no longer preen. They no longer feel the need to perform or to parade 
or to pretend that they are something that they are not. Ultimately, the Spirit of God needs to move in us, as it did in Paul, to realize that there is a kind of freedom where you no longer need to boast. You no longer need to prop up. Because your ultimate hope and your ultimate destination and your ultimate desire for happiness has been replaced and given to you freely in Christ. To turn to Jesus is freedom and rest and gentleness and life because every other kind of hope, every other kind of faith not only will fail you, but it will exhaust you and grind you into the ground. It is a worthy exercise to ask yourself, what am I trusting in? What do I fear losing the most? What am I protecting? And then one by one, to offer those things up, to renounce them, and to claim what you have in Jesus. You need a righteousness, and Christ has given it to you. You need to be justified, and you've been declared so in Him. You need a standing and a hope and an eternal destination, and you have one in Him. You need to fulfill the the Torah and the Ten Commandments perfectly, and you have in Christ. You long for happiness, and you will have it if you would renounce self, exclude your boasting, and be found in Him. Let's pray. God, I ask that we would come to grips with pride, that we would not try to maintain the impossibility of being boastful Christians, proud Christians. And more than that, I pray that it would be freedom for us to give these things up, to suffer the loss of all of our performance, to suffer the loss of our identity, of our pretending, of our parading, and to count it as gain. God, I confess that I I do boast. I, I love to cling to things. I'm proud of things. I turn to them when I need hope or happiness. And I ask God that you would forgive me for this and instead help me to grasp onto, by faith, to grasp on the grace that we have in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.